Good morning to everyone. It's nice and cool. It feels like fall. It's the best time of year. I wish it was like this 11 months of the year, or 12 actually. All right, we are continuing our series in Matthew 12, so I'm going to ask you to turn there. Matthew 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 32 this morning. And once you're there, then I'd ask if we all would stand in reverence uh, as we read God's Word. And these are the perfect and holy words of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if, Christ, or, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. So last week, Chris uh, Wool from Trails came to preach the preceding verses uh, in this chapter, and I think did a good job. Uh, and a lot of what we're looking at this morning actually rests, like it often does in Scripture. Uh, scripture isn't just a grab bag of life hacks kind of randomly assembled. It's a continuous argument, each idea building on the last idea. And so uh, I will make periodic reference to the importance of what Chris walked us through last week, particularly uh, Jesus' reference to the prophecy in Isaiah in verse uh, 20 and 21, immediately preceding this passage. And that is that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not crunch, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. What we're looking at today builds on that, and it, it keeps on building indeed as we go through the ministry of Jesus and through the book. So we saw before that we had a confrontation over the Sabbath, and now we have a confrontation that Chris walked us through last week, and now we have yet another confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And things are building, quite intentionally so, we may say. Jesus' ministry starts in obscurity, and as we move on through this gospel... The confrontation gets more and more open. It gets more and more bold until it reaches its climactic ending, of course. <clears throat> so hopefully we can keep in mind what we've been looking at the last two weeks as we think of the backdrop for the confrontation that we're looking at this morning. It's probably past the Sabbath confrontation. We're probably in a different day and in a different conversation by now in the text beyond the Sabbath confrontation. But uh, nevertheless, these run-ins keep 
happening. And in today's passage, we, it's laid out for us in verse 22 and 23, where it says, A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And if you go back several months when we were in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 32 and verse 33, there was there already a connection between demonic possession and physical ailments in certain people. And interestingly, in that healing, back in chapter 9, the Pharisees also accused Jesus of casting out demons using demonic power. And here too, there is a seeming connection between this man's blindness and muteness and his being oppressed by a demon. And as is often the case, there's a guardrail on either side when we think about demonic activity. Just because someone is suffering a physical ailment, we don't automatically go looking for demon possession. However, in those instances where demon possession is real, as in today's narrative, it does very much have physical uh, implications in the life of that person. God made us a unity, body and soul, and so you uh, can hardly touch on one without it affecting the other. So this connection between the physical and the spiritual that is happening in the case of this man makes sense. He is a complete creature in the image of God. And the spiritual curse on the world manifests itself in most physical things. We see it around us. Tim read the law this morning, and it was a spiritual picture of God, and yet when that law is broken, it has very real-world, very physical manifestations, things like murder, okay? Things like theft happen in the real world. And so the healing hand of Christ manifests itself in both the physical and in the spiritual world. And Jesus heals the whole man in this passage. The spiritual oppression and the physical disabilities are both ministered to by Jesus. And when the people surrounding them see the miracle, they ask, could this be the son of David? Now sometimes there's cynical questions in the Bible, but there's no indication here that this is a cynical question. This seems to be a very sincere question. These people are familiar with the, uh, the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament and how he has prophesied and, and what kind of a ministry he's going to have and that he will indeed come from the house of David. And so this seems to be a good faith question. As these people, not the Pharisees, but as the bystanders are watching Jesus perform his ministry, this seems to be a good faith question. Could this be the one? Is this him? Is this our Messiah? And from literally the first verse in this gospel, Matthew has intentionally, Chris brought this out last week, that Matthew was written for a Jewish audience and he is self-consciously trying to remind this audience over and over again how Jesus fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament, all these hopes and dreams that the people had about their coming Mashiach, their Messiah. And so this connection is not accidental and these people got it. They're asking the right question, is this the promised son of David? And it goes on in verse 24. It says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And this is just like also what we've previously read already in this gospel. In chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is being accused of being from Beelzebul. And Beelzebul is a variant on Baal 
Zebal, which in the Old Testament, in, uh, in the Hebrew conception, would have meant Lord of the Flies. It's a satanic reference. This man comes from the pit of hell. Okay? This man is evil. He is wicked. He is the Lord of the Flies. He is in league with Satan himself. And the Pharisees are accusing the God-man of being in league with Satan. In verse 25, we see a a glimpse of Christ's omniscience or his all-knowing. He knows the intentions of people's hearts because, of course, he is God. He sees through into the heart. And he explains to them that their ideas don't make any sense. The mantra of united we stand, divided we fall is so obviously true that it's just an obvious military tactic. Okay? You break your enemy down into bite-sized pieces if you want to conquer him. Why would Satan uh, plunder his own house that way? Why would he give up his strength to make himself more easily conquered? But the strategy is clear. If you want to conquer someone, you divide and conquer. Okay? And, and we've made reference to that very practically in our own time uh, when we think of everything in terms of statism or just pure force and how the family and how churches are under attack, it is for this very reason. Families and churches and communities make bonds. They make molecular strength. And the enemies of God know very well that the key for them to own the future is to break these things down, to weaken churches, to have families come apart because they know there's molecular strength. And Satan may be evil, but he is not stupid. He knows that he has to hold it together if he is going to put up a fight. So it makes no sense to say that Satan would be casting out Satan and dividing his own empire. Christ turns the accusation against him around in verse 27 and asks about the Jews who were involved in casting out demons. Jesus wasn't the first one to cast out demons in Palestine. In Acts 19.13, we read about Jewish exorcists. So clearly there were people doing this kind of thing even among the Jews. Further in Mark 9.28, we read about some others who are casting out demons but are not directly following Jesus and the apostles. And the Jewish historian Josephus speaks about, in his time, some who were casting out demons in the name of God or sometimes in the name of God, uh, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this kind of thing was happening apart from Christ, and the Pharisees seemingly did not oppose that. So they had no principal objection to uh, casting out demons or working in that realm. What they were opposing was Christ himself as a person. And so they were not uh, opposing these others, they were opposing Jesus himself. And this is why Jesus demands of them to explain, by whom do your sons cast them out? Why are you not criticizing other people who are doing this? Why is the criticism coming to me? Okay, Jesus is heating it up. He's showing them your opposition is not that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. Your opposition, Pharisees, is that you hate me. You hate Jesus Christ. You hate the God-man. That's your problem. And he's going to push into that argument further as we go on. Their problem really is Jesus Christ himself. And they're showing their dislike and their envy of him. And so these others will be judges over the Pharisees because they show the Pharisees are not being at all consistent. They are using one standard for their own house and another standard against Christ. And they are opposing the vision that Jesus repeats from Isaiah about the nature of his ministry. That he is advancing justice until it is victorious. And their hardness of heart 
is especially evident here because they know that what Jesus is doing are genuine miracles. These are not fake miracles. They're not lying miracles. They're genuine. They're signs that this is, in fact, the Christ. And we can see in our own time, and and this happened back in Christ's time as well, the Sadducees were the theological liberals, and we certainly have a healthy dose of theological liberalism in our own day, and their tactic is often to deny the miracles of the Bible. Liberalism says, well, we don't live in that kind of a world. We live in just a cold mechanical cause and effect machine without spiritual reality. And so they will deny the liberals. And they pretend to still love Jesus and they still want him as an ethical teacher, which they cannot split him up that way. But their presupposition is that miracles can't happen. And they have been hardened in that way. But there is a way in which the Pharisees are even more hardened than that. Because the Pharisees see the light that these are true miracles. Notice there's never a dispute about whether this miracle actually happened or not. They know the miracle happened. They know it. Their eyes are at least that open. So they agree that these are genuine miracles. But then they accuse Jesus. They turn around and say, yes, it's a a genuine miracle, but you did it because you're in league with Satan, with the prince of darkness. And Jesus pushes back in verse 29 and 30. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus is switching now from defense to offense, from turning their questions back on them to making claims about himself and what he is doing. Jesus is clearly casting out demons by the Spirit of God. We've just seen that. And because of that, he is now saying, he's teaching positively that the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom came with the king. And this is consistent with the preaching of John the Baptist about the closeness and the the near-at-handness of the kingdom. And Christ's teaching at the beginning of his ministry that the kingdom of God was now at hand. And Christ is asserting that he is very literally the hinge on which all history turns. And this is just so manifestly true. Just think of the way we count years. Christ is the hinge of history. I was talking with one gentleman actually this morning, this wasn't provoked, about how even at the Christian school, some teachers are using CE and BCE to mark the calendar instead of before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But even that is a silly endeavor because year zero is still Christ. (laughs) The common era after what, please? Right? You, can't, you cannot escape this. We've talked about this, but Jesus Christ's ministry on earth is literally the hinge on which all human history turns. And the fall of our first parents meant that what was originally created good became corrupted and marred because of satanic influence. And the arrival of the king now means that the kingdom of light is coming to push back against that kingdom of darkness. What the prophets and the patriarchs and the Old Covenant heads and the Old Testament saw as a future promise has now come in the flesh, in a ministry in the Middle East. Commenting on verse 28, the commentator Matthew Henry comments that the other miracles of Jesus proved that he was sent by God. In this miracle and its explanation that Christ gives, Christ is offering an explanation that he was sent by God for a particular mission. And that is to destroy the, king, the devil's kingdom and his dark works. 
And so if the fall of our first parents meant that Satan had climbed aboard this ship and taken control of it like a pirate and started to claim authority over it, now we have God sending his son to rightfully claim his rightful spot. We saw in the confrontation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the temptation, Satan tries to negotiate with Jesus. Right? If you bow to me, if you legitimize my authority, I'll give you all these kingdoms over which I am Lord. But notice Christ does not negotiate. Christ refuses to negotiate. He refuses to legitimize Satan's hold on creation. And instead of negotiating, Jesus is now at the point in the story where he is taking the kingdom back by force with a head-on confrontation. And it starts with the Pharisees, but it gets much bigger than that. He refuses Satan's claims to be the ruler of the world. And if Satan is like a strong man who has set up shop on a fallen creation, Christ is now declaring open warfare. He is binding the strong man and starting to plunder his stuff. And this is what happens in the case of this demon-oppressed man. Christ has bound the strong man and is looting his kingdom. And we can indeed see that to this very day. Every time a sinner comes to the Lord, every time a dead sinner has their eyes opened and they see the glory of Jesus Christ and of his gospel, we see that the strong man has been bound and Jesus is taking his stuff. We have a very real example of what it's like for Jesus to empty Satan's goods. And this happens one by one when sinners are converted. And we see it on a broader scale as the gospel goes out, as we pray for missions to continue on. People are plundering Satan's stuff, and we need to keep at it. When we think about this theme of Christ's kingdom having arrived, and what it means that he has bound the strong man in order to plunder his goods, there's always room for confusion and distortion here. One of which is, uh, some conceptualize it and they see sin and, and difficulty remaining in the world, and so they assume the kingdom must be all future. It's only a future reality, because there is still corruption on the scene. And they are correct to see difficulty and sin and death remaining. But Jesus' words are hard to miss here. He says the kingdom came, past tense, down to earth. And so in a very real sense, it is here in some very real sense and has been since the time of Christ. And if the kingdom has not broken in to the world, then the ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ has not in any way affected the trajectory of human history. Things are continuing in an equally demonic spiral even after Christ takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. Some have suggested, to make sense of the corruption and the death that remains, that Jesus' kingdom is merely spiritual. It's just a spiritual. It's just symbolic. It doesn't really touch on the real world. It's, It's just a spiritual kingdom. But here, too, we run into difficulty. And again, if we don't yet see the finished victory of Christ's kingdom on earth... Some assert that it's a spiritual, merely spiritual kingdom. And this view can sideline Christians. Sometimes you've maybe heard the expression that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And if we think that Jesus doesn't make a difference with real people in real situations, uh, that may be a distortion that we make. But this misses the fact that Jesus was incarnated as a physical human being. And he entered actual history. And since his coming... Christianity has torn down empires, built nations. It has translated the Bible into real human languages. It has built physical and earthly things like families, universities, Bible translations, societies, missions, agencies, churches. So clearly, there's something happening on earth. 
And in fact, we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's reminded us the, the purpose, as we read from uh, Matthew 12, 20 and 21, as Jesus is quoting Isaiah, what the very purpose of his coming is. And that is to minister until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So clearly there's this world implications. But another distortion that we can make is to think that the kingdom is all wrapped up. It's all finalized. It's fully realized. It's, it's completed. It's in its finished form. And this is the mistake that many prosperity preachers make. They pull all future glory into the present. So they expect a life without suffering and without death and without difficulty. They expect every tear to be wiped dry right now. That there should be no suffering. And if this is the case, then why would Jesus give the reminder about the bruised reed and the smoldering wick? This view can't anticipate future glory because they think it's all done already. So when we think about the present-day implications of what it means that Christ's kingdom has come and yet it's not yet final, or that the strong man, to use Jesus' language here, has been bound, it may be helpful to shrink it down to a personal level. When you are converted to Christ, you are transferred legally from one kingdom to another. Your justification is complete. Legally, this declaration is made. It's done. And yet in your experience of growing in holiness, it's a process. It's a fight. It's a struggle. You've got to keep pushing. And so sometimes analogies may help. I've sometimes given uh, the analogy of D-Day as the hinge on which World War II was settled. Once the ships landed on Omaha Beach in Normandy, the war was essentially over. The tide had turned, the West had won, but the fighting continued until formal surrender happened. Or maybe a more scriptural analogy is, uh, think of your wedding. The day Tanya and me got married 20-some years ago, uh, when we were declared husband and wife, we were just as married in that moment as we are today. And yet our marriage is much deeper and much fuller and much richer today, even though legally we're no more married now than we were then. So there's something that happened there that has uh, growing consequences. One theologian, Gerhardus Voss, talks about this as the already but the not yet fully. It started, but it's not yet finished. This kingdom, this binding of the strong man, comes with Christ So it's been here, in one sense, for 2,000 years. But the binding of the strong man is different than him being thrown in the lake of fire, which we read about in the future. So he's weakened. He's diminished. His head has been struck by Jesus Christ, by the cross and the ascension of Christ. His chain has been shortened, but he is still there, prowling around, looking whom he may devour next. He's still opposing the work of Christ. And because he knows that his kingdom is the one that is fading away, he is gnashing as angry as ever like a pit bull at the end of his chain. But the fact remains, he is on a chain. And his activity has been limited. And there is still so much corruption and so much death and so much unbelief and so much sin in this world that clearly there remain many goods that need to be plundered. And this is why we carry on with the work of missions. Why we continue to raise little children to know the Lord Jesus. Why a church like this is worth the work to get the gospel out. Because the work is not yet done. It's not yet wrapped up. We're anticipating the return of our king. When, enemy, when every enemy is to be put under his feet. And when justice has indeed been brought to the coastlands. So understanding that we're in this overlapping time between the inaugurated and the consummated kingdom, I think is helpful because it helps us to understand what we're supposed to do now. We don't give up in despair, but we're not yet running victory laps either. 
And the great missionary scholar, E. Stanley Jones, has said that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look at what the world has come to. But in delight, look at what has come to the world. The God-man has come. That's the, the hope that we work in. And then in light of all this, in light of this war between the strong man and between the kingdom of light, Jesus lays a dividing line down that is true for everyone in this room and everyone in human history. And if you think you're immune from this dividing line, you are not. Okay? Jesus lays it down here. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay? There are only two ways of being people. You are in league with Christ or you are in league with Satan. There is no third way. You are on one side of that line or the other, but you are not straddling it. You are on one side or the other. You either bend the knee to this conquering King Jesus or you have declared open warfare on him. There is no neutrality. There is no third way. And if you have not decided, that is a decision. To say, I'm going to hold it off till I'm 30. I'm going to sow my wild oats and then I'll repent. Okay? I'll, I'll wait to decide. To wait to decide is to decide today I will remain at war against the Lord. There is no third way. If you are not actively working in gathering in with Christ and his kingdom, you are working against him. Jesus does not offer terms of neutrality. It's clear. Pick a side. You're on one side or the other. To pretend to be neutral means that you are not actively gathering into the kingdom. You are not making Christ known. You are not bringing things in subjection under the king. And if you are not attacking the kingdom of darkness with your Lord, if you are not fighting against sin in your life, then you are fighting Christ himself. That's the decision that Jesus lays down here. Jesus says, if you're not busy gathering with him, then you are busy scattering. And this is maybe a great analogy at harvest time. Everyone is bringing in their crop right now. And if you saw, you know, go to Ray and Audrey's farm and, and they're busy combining soybeans and putting it into their bin and I'm there at the bin door with my shovel and I'm tossing it out of the bin, <laughs> it'd be hard to say that I'm being neutral. Okay? I am actively opposing the constructive work that they are trying to do. And that is what Jesus says we are doing if we are not on board with the mission, you are actively opposing his work. Okay? These are strong words. If you're not helping, you're hurting. Nobody is sitting on the sidelines. If you're on the sidelines, you're hurting. You're on the wrong side. We must participate in Christ's kingdom advance. Otherwise, he says, you belong to the kingdom of Satan. And this is a different tone than we often hear in evangelism today. Won't you give Jesus a chance? Won't you try Jesus out? Give him 40 days. Give Jesus 40 days. He's going to turn your life around. Your marriage is going to be so much better. Your business is, you know, it's just, I, I just want to tell you how Jesus has blessed my business. That's the way we do this. We're not used to just, you have to decide. <laughs> okay? You're either in or you're out. You're either working with me or you are scattering my work. Jesus lays it down very, very clearly. And there's implications for everyone here, for us men. Are you gathering? Are you taking responsibility for yourself and for others around you? Are you using your masculine strength to help the weak, to pull people up, to help build this church and your family and encourage your friends? 
And for the ladies, are you building faithful homes? Are you encouraging others around you? Are you exercising your own feminine dominion and making your surroundings full with the aroma of Jesus Christ? As a church, are we equipping people to read the word, to be in the word, to understand the word, to apply the word? Are we equipping people to fight sin and to evangelize as we go out into the world? Are we doing that? If we're not, we're scattering. If we're not, we're disobeying. What about in the workplace? We want to bring Christ with us there. And this is a tough one for us to conceptualize, but not just as a platform to evangelize, but also with excellent quality work. Okay, Martin Luther talked about, you know, the Christian shoemaker isn't someone who stitches a little cross on his shoes. What makes a Christian shoemaker is he makes the best shoes in Germany. That's a Christian crossmaker, okay? Or a shoemaker. It's not just someone who slips a tract and, and uses it just as a platform to evangelize. Yes, that is part of it. But also with excellent work, with diligent work, we are making Christ known. And so Christ has boiled it all down to this confrontation. There is a war between two kingdoms, one which is passing away and the other which is growing. Satan has been bound in order that the kingdom of Christ can invade, plunder, and advance until the day of the return of the king. And everyone in history has been put on notice that you are on one side of this war or on the other. You are gathering in or you are fighting Christ by scattering. And so I want to ask each one this morning, where are you at? Where are you at this morning? Are you gathering? Are you actively plundering Satan's stuff in the world around you? Or are you running interference? Are you hindering the work of Christ and of his church? And if you're on the sidelines and waiting to decide, please understand you have decided. Okay? But while you have breath, it is not too late to do the right thing, to switch teams. And he has offered the terms of peace. Christ has offered comfort. We just saw that. This kingdom isn't just nonstop warfare. It is also a place of refreshing, as we saw last week. There's a hospital in the back there, too, a place of healing. And he promises that if you're coming in hurt, if you're coming in wounded, he promises the bruised reed he will not break and the smoldering wick he will not quench. He just as tenderly cares for the wounded in the battle, even while the war rages on. And so this confrontation with the Pharisees is the backdrop for the language that we're going to get to about the unpardonable sin. Everyone read that and said, well, are we going to get to that? You know, what's the unpardonable sin? You can't understand it apart from everything that's just happened. When Christ talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the sin that will not be forgiven, he starts with a therefore in verse 31. Okay? And so that means, the word therefore means everything that he's about to say rests on what has already been said, what has already happened. And so this means that everything we know about the unforgivable sin is based on the confrontation that we've just looked at. And what are these words? He says in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. And so what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is a sin of words, either spoken words or written words. But it's using words to speak against God. And the third commandment, we read that this morning, instructs us not to use God's name in vain. 
And Jesus instructs us in quite the opposite. He says, start your prayers by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, so he's not just saying, don't blaspheme the name of the Lord. Don't use it in vain. Use it in a holy, constructive manner. But even here, Jesus, as serious as it is to break the third commandment, that's not what's unforgivable. Jesus is not giving permission to break the third commandment, but he is saying, he's not saying that blasphemy as an overall category is unforgivable. Okay, this isn't permission, but he is saying it will be forgiven to blaspheme against the Son. And this sounds odd, because the Pharisees have been blaspheming Jesus. And we may think that because the Spirit serves the Father and the Son, that the Spirit is somehow the junior partner in the Trinity. So why would it be okay to blaspheme the greater partners, but then if we blaspheme the lesser partners, that's unforgivable? It seems weird. It sets up a a strange dynamic in our head. So why does Jesus single out the Spirit? Why does he say that that blasphemy will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come? And here's what I think is the case. It is the Spirit's job, even though he acts more in the background than the Father and Son do, it is his job to illumine, to give us eyes, to open our eyes, to apply grace, to see Christ, and to apply his work to our lives. And if someone has received enough light from the Spirit to know the truth of the gospel, and then they actively, knowingly speak evil against it, this is an act of repudiating and speaking evil of the Spirit. Those people who do that are guilty of this sin. And this isn't people who are born again who then lose their salvation. That's not what it's saying. That would set up problems with other texts. This is saying these people have enough light to know actively what they're sinning against, and they still say that Jesus is evil. Jesus is satanic. Okay? These people are guilty of a great crime against the little bit of light that has been given to them. And I think this is undergirded uh, by other passages uh, that hint, I think, at the same things. Because what these guys are doing, what the Pharisees are doing, is different than mere ignorance that happens before conversion. For example, in Luke 23, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're sinning in ignorance. Peter says essentially the same thing in Acts 3. Peter acknowledges that these Pharisees were acting in ignorance. This is different. This isn't ignorance. These aren't regenerate, born-again people, but these are people who know who they are opposing, and they hate him with such hatred. The active, intentional, conscious rejection of Christ, and then the additional step of speaking evil against him to the point of confusing him with Satan is a blasphemy against the light of the Spirit. These guys have attributed Jesus' work to the Lord of the flies, to evil, to the evil one, and Jesus is saying, watch your step. Be very, very careful here. You have been given enough light. You are looking at the whites of my eyes. You are standing five feet from me, and we can look at each other. The God man is standing in front of you. The Son of God is right in front of you, and you are attributing to him demonic activity, you guys be very, very careful. Because this is a level of hardness. This is a level of God hatred that you will not step back from if and when you cross this line. I think this is also undergirded in Hebrews 10. What can prove to be a challenging text. 
Hebrews 10, 26 or 29 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. The severity of this sin, of this blasphemy against the spirit, is that it happens after receiving enough light to have the knowledge of truth. And again, this is different than sins of ignorance. This is different than sins of carelessness. This is different than falling into temptation. Okay? This isn't a perennial daily struggle. This is seeing the whites of Jesus' eyes and saying, you are Satan. Okay? That is a serious hardness. And so remember, Jesus is warning the Pharisees that they are treading on very dangerous ground and they better stop. Because they know these miracles are genuine. They know that they're performed by the Son of God. Their eyes are wide open in that sense. But the hardness and pride and hatred in their hearts against Christ, is so vehement that they would rather accuse him of being a demon than to bend their knee in reverence to the king. And this is an instance where the sin is most obviously on display, when Christ himself is right there, physically in their presence. They're blaspheming the spirit because Jesus has announced the arrival of his kingdom by casting out demons by the power of the spirit. So Jesus is saying, I'm working in the power of the spirit, and that's what you guys are blaspheming. And they're saying it's Satan's work. They are blaspheming against the Spirit who has given them enough light to know who Christ is and they still hate him. Now, if you're scared stiff of this, as I have been in my life, I want everyone to just take a deep breath. Okay? I don't want you to stay scared stiff. Can Christians commit this sin? Well, yes. And most definitely not. If left to yourself, it's in our hearts, unaided by grace. Everyone in this room is capable of doing this. Will the Spirit of God let you? Absolutely not. Okay? Christ keeps those who are his. Salvation means eternal life, not life that gets snuffed out when you do something bad. The Spirit will keep you from crossing this line. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Okay? Jesus takes all the way home those who are his. Okay? So if you are in Christ, you cannot cross this line. You will not cross this line. Jesus will get you all the way home. So don't worry if you are a Christian. And I also want to calm the fears of anyone who thinks they may have committed this sin past tense. And this goes equally true for any struggles that saints have with finding their assurance. And this is really a simple test, and it's so simple I think we sometimes struggle to grasp it. If you care whether or not you have crossed this line, that is strong evidence you have not. Okay? Someone who is so hardened that they have crossed this line does not care. They could read this passage 10 times, they could listen to this sermon 20 times, and they would not care one bit because they have pushed themselves so far in their hatred of God that they just don't care. If you care, that isn't evidence you have not crossed the line. Okay? 
your heart is soft. At least soft enough that you're thinking about these things. So one of the great evidences that you have not committed this sin is that you're asking yourself right now, have I committed this sin? If you're asking yourself, no, okay? We, we also read an assurance of pardon here every week, not just the law of God. We read an assurance of pardon every week, okay? When Christ's law cuts us dead, his gospel makes us alive. And that is the job of us as ministers and elders is to announce life. You have been pardoned, okay? If you're worried about this stuff, you are pardoned. Come to Jesus. He will not cast you out. But for those who remain outside, this sin does find its termination point, its final point at death, when the hardened, hating heart finally beats its last pulses of arrogant hatred against the Lord Jesus, and all the pride and all the covetousness and all the self-love steps that foot over eternity, where it wages its war forevermore, never finding the least moment of relief or even an intermittent moment of joy that it once had on earth. And again, if that sounds terrifying, Jesus' threats of hell are always meant to be terrifying. But if it is terrifying to you, you have not put your foot over that line. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sealed by his spirit. He has his stamp on you. Think of a seal in the old days. You'd pour some wax on a document and then someone would push his ring into it to say, that's mine. Okay? The king's name is on that document. Okay? If you have come to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, Christ's seal is on you. That wax has dropped on you and the king has put his seal on you. You are secure from this. You are safe from this and you have nothing to fear. But even if you have spoken against God, and this is what I was always so terrified Grade three playground theology was a bad business for me because I heard all kinds of interesting theology on the playground. And I confused this with a violation of the third commandment. And to my awareness, I had never actually used the Lord's name in vain in the way that it so commonly is. But I thought, well, what if now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, <laughs> right? And, and I was scared and I, I was lived in fear of this. And I want to calm those fears. Okay? This is more than resisting the Spirit. This is more uh, than even using the Lord's name in vain. This is more than sinning. Okay? This is looking at the whites of Jesus' eyes and saying, I hate you. You are Satan. Okay? If you have not crossed that line, Christ will take you all the way home. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your warnings. Lord, they are the tools that you use to keep us safe with your shepherd's crook, to pull us in when we're straying, to warn us uh, that there is no future for us outside of obedience to you. Lord, and I pray that you would have used this text this morning as that crook to pull us in, to remind us how important it is to be soft and to get on mission with you, gathering into your kingdom rather than opposing your work. Lord, and I pray that if anyone here is scared this morning or fearful or they have a struggle for assurance, Lord, I pray that you would press it into them that even that is sign of spiritual life. Lord, it is great evidence that their heart is soft. Lord, and I pray that even though we cannot peer into people's hearts, Lord, I pray that we would make you known in such a way that we would remind those who are struggling under the weight of sin, under the weight of unconfessed guilt, that there is rest in this kingdom. There is peace. Lord, you promise that you will not break the broken reed. You promise that you will not put out the smoldering wick. 
Lord, and as we encounter people who are broken, who are beat up, who are carrying their guilt around with them, Lord, I pray that they would see the sweetness of the rest, the sweetness of fellowship, and the promise that you will take all the way home every last one who comes to you in repentant faith. Give us the courage, give us the confidence to announce the terms of your peace as we go out. And we thank you for your kindness. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.